Would you please stand for the reading of the word? Hear the word of the Lord. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little bit farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The word of the Lord. Be blessed. Be seated, please. Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you here today. My name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. And um, if this is your first time with us, man, we're just delighted to have you here. Uh, I used to work um, over in Cullen Auditorium at ACU, and some of you guys know where that is. Like, on a good day, I would be like a producer of a show. On, on a normal day, I unlocked the doors. It was not like a really spectacular job. Um, but I got to sit there a lot and hear a lot of shows and, and music and experience a lot of really great things as I was being paid. It was kind of cool. But there was one thing that happened about three times a year that I absolutely despised. It was graduation. Now, I know graduation is a really big deal for some of you, but if you have to go to a three-hour graduation service where you don't know anybody whose name is going to be called, it is terrible. I mean, it's, let's be honest, it's terrible for everyone, even if you have a son or daughter that's about to graduate, because you have to wait there for like your eight seconds where your loved one's name is called, and then you cheer, and then terrible. It's, on average, pretty bad. And there's always a valedictorian that gives a speech, and I've probably sat through, I think, two dozen graduations now, and I can't remember one valedictorian speech, but I can tell you what they all said. How great was it that we were in this experience? How amazing is the future going to be? How incredible is our life potential? That's every valedictorian speech you've ever been. And then there's also a, usually another speech from somebody that might be important or famous or uh, a politician, and it just talks about life. And you, I guarantee you, dollars to donuts, you cannot remember one of those speeches because they're terrible. <laughs> I have never been asked to give one of those speeches. <laughs> and neither was Mary Smith. She uh, was an, a writer for the Chicago Tribune. And in 1997, she, she wrote a column that just basically said, if I were to be able to give a commencement speech, this is what it would be. And she began her column with two words that became semi-famous. They were, wear sunscreen. And Boz Lerman, who is kind of a surrealist movie maker, he came across her column and he put it to music. And it became for the class of 1999, which I realized most of you weren't born then, but uh, 1999, it became like their first like spoken word theme song. And it was just full of like just good advice. And later after the sermon, get on YouTube and, 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 and search for the sunscreen song and, and you can hear what I'm saying. It was my second favorite graduation speech that I've ever heard. My most favorite was from David Foster Wallace. 
who recently passed away. In 2005, he gave the commencement address to a college, and he began it by sharing two parables. And I want to share those with you today. If you have ears to hear, let them hear. There were two young fish, and they were uh, swimming along, and along approached an older fish. And the older fish looked at the two younger fish, and he said, how about that water, huh? And the younger fish looked at him and said, uh-huh. And as he swam away, one looked to the other and said, what's water? The other parable he told was about an atheist and a believer. They were in a bar in Alaska, and they were good friends, and they'd been friends for some time, and they loved to chat with one another, and sometimes the topic of their conversation turned itself towards spirituality and, and God, and each loved the other, although they didn't agree on this topic. And one day, the believer said, well, haven't you even tried? Have you even tried to pray yet? Have you ever just experimented to see what would happen? And the atheist said, oh, yeah, I tried once. I know, I know what happens. The believer said, really? He said, yeah, I was on my snowmobile, and I was pretty far out of town, far enough that uh, when the snowmobile died, I couldn't walk back before it got too cold. And the believer looked at him and said, well, you're, you're here. What happened? And the atheist said, well, I prayed. The believer said, yes. And, and the atheist said, and then along came these two Inuit guys, and they helped me get home. And the believer said, well, and the atheist said, it wasn't God, it was those two Inuits that helped me. The point of the first parable, it's incredibly difficult to know the obviously assumed. If you have spent your whole life in water, you may not have even thought what it is. The second parable is similar to it, that your point of view and your presupposed narrative have striking power in interpreting the events around you. So much so that the same story told from a believer's perspective and an atheistic perspective can come to radically different conclusions. If you have ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray together. Father God, for the great and wonderful power of your love, we give you praise. We marvel at the mystery. We wonder in your grace. And Father, as we bring ourselves to you again, we are so grateful that we can stand to sing about your son Jesus, about the depth of his love, about his victory over death. And Father, as we celebrate his life together, we turn our hearts and our minds to you. Let this spirit fill this place. Let it translate these words. Let your love be known to all. And it's together that the church says, Amen. Jesus begins his ministry on the shore of the Galilee with these words. The time has come and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. His cousin John has just been arrested. And... By Mark chapter 6, John is already dead. He may be dead already. And Jesus, knowing the risk, he steps into the role that he was called. 
And most of us don't spend much time reflecting or examining on what our deepest core values. We're like those fish asking the question, what is water? But those values are so deeply ingrained, we don't even question or uh, question the assumption that they exist. I think the best way to explain this is a, is a riddle that I want to tell you. A man and his son were uh, driving along and they were in a terrible uh, car accident. The man was killed and the son was badly injured. And so uh, EMT folks, they take the son uh, to the hospital. He goes straight from the emergency room up to surgery to save his life. And the surgeon walks into the room, takes one look at the boy and says, I cannot operate on this patient, it's my son. How is it possible? The surgeon is his, his mother, right? But we live in a society, we live in a time where so often we think of surgeons as men that that riddle may just question our reality, challenge our reality. And Jesus goes to seek to find, he calls the disciples. And there's so much that we don't know surrounding the story. There's so many questions that I want to wrestle with the text Did Simon, Andrew, James, and John know Jesus, or was this just their first contact with him? I mean, he knows their names. Did he have background with them in history? Why did Jesus pick them? They seem pretty ordinary. They seem to misunderstand Jesus pretty often. They seem just about as brave and fearful as any of us. Why Simon, Andrew, James, and John? They were probably pretty poor. I mean, they were fishermen in Galilee, but the sons of Zebedee might have had some money. I mean, Zebedee is left with the other workers as they left. A fisherman in Galilee was pretty heavily taxed. We have um, archaeological evidence of uh, a processing plant of the, of the fishing industry around Galilee that happened around the first century. And we know that the Romans taxed that uh, fishing plant Uh, pretty mercilessly. We also know from other evidence that we have found boats that date about to that same time. The boat that they found was patched and rehulled about nine times. So the the capital expense of a new boat was expensive enough that they tried to just to keep it afloat however they could. They found nets from the first century, and the nets have been mended and mended and mended almost to the point where it's a brand new net. And so fishermen at least were taxed heavily and they didn't have a lot of money for new capital expenses. So it's a fair assumption that these people were pretty poor. And I don't want us to miss, as we move on, what happens in this moment. Again, our assumptions shape the way we hear the text. The sons of Zebedee leave their father. Now, for most of us, leaving is part of what it means to grow up. If, if you're still living with your family, at the time that you're, you know, 45, people might think that's odd for you here where we live, but in the first century, leaving parents is a huge thing. We kind of gloss that over in the text, but the sons of Zebedee left their dad. Probably these guys were poor. There's, I think the best way to explain that is is through quinoa. Um, but before I want to tell you about quinoa, I want to tell you about kale. Um, about, about five years ago, kale like exploded on the scene in Northern California as a superfood. Do people eat kale here? 
It's terrible, isn't it? It's, it's awful. The only way you can eat kale is if you like deep fry it and drizzle it in honey. That's the only way it tastes any good. In fact, the best way to cook kale is with coconut oil. And so it slides easier from your plate into the trash can. That's the best way to eat kale. Just to prove my point, although I don't have to, do you know what the number one consumer of kale was in the world before the kale like superfood movement came along? Pizza Hut. Pizza Hut was the number one consumer of kale, not because people ate it, but because it was the decoration in their salad bar, because who would eat kale? <laughs> Quinoa, on the other hand, actually it tastes good. It's delicious and it's super healthy for you, so why not eat it, right? And so quinoa comes along in this superfood movement. The interesting thing about quinoa is that it only grows in certain parts of the world. It requires kind of a mountainous uh, climate. It doesn't grow everywhere. And before quinoa became known as like this great food, it was just a local grain. But now it has become so expensive that the farmers of quinoa are exporting it all. They can't afford to eat it. And that might be kind of like the world that Simon, Andrew, James, and John find themselves in until they are called. Each of us are called. I mean, sometimes we talk about special calling, called to be a missionary or, or called to be an elder, but it's clear in Scripture that ordinary people are occasionally called to be part of the critical story of what God is doing. And I think most of us, if we reflect on our lives and think about what God has done in our lives, we've experienced those moments where God has kind of opened up a door and said, do you want to be part of the story? Because I've got something for you to do. And if we were able to be faithful in that moment, it's changed our life or changed the life of somebody else. And occasionally we find ourselves like Jonah, running away from God as fast as we can. There's that wonderful wordplay in the NIV that fishermen become fishers of men, but really we mean people. But I think what Mark is doing there is not just clever wordplay. I think he's calling us back to the Old Testament. We talked last week about uh, when, when Jesus is announced, when he goes to be baptized by his cousin, John uh, the Baptizer, uh, Mark frames that story with Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah chapter 40 is originally about the exile. It's the return from Babylon back to Jerusalem. God says, make the, sh- make the path straight because I'm coming to you. I'm coming to get you, and so make it level so I can get there fast. But it wasn't about the return from Babylon. It was about the return to God. That's what Jesus is doing. He's bringing his people back to God. And I think this clever play about fishermen is actually from uh, Jeremiah chapter 16, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but instead, as the Lord lives who brought the people out of of Israel, out of the land of the north, that's Babylon, and out of the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave their ancestors. I am now sending many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterwards, I will send many hunters, and they shall hunt for them from every mountain and every hill out of the clefts of the rocks. 
I think what Mark's trying to say here is that this, the inauguration, the beginning of Jesus' ministry is going to hearken back. It's going to call back to the Babylonian exile and the return where God not only brought back his people from Babylon, he brought back people from everywhere. And he's probably talking about Assyria and the northern tribes that try to disappear into history. That fishermen will become fishers of men, bringing his people back home. It's noticeable to me who Jesus doesn't call. Where Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee. I find it striking. He doesn't begin his ministry in the powerful and cultured city of Jerusalem. And I wonder why. Because if you're going to start a movement, you want to start it in a popular and powerful place. A place of respect. That's the exact opposite of where Jesus starts. Not in the cultural, political powerhouse of Abilene. But in the sticks. In the know-nothing town. That if you blink as you're driving by, it's gone. This story is especially notable, and we, and we miss it because we don't know the context, but usually a rabbi was asked by his students if he could be their rabbi, not the other way around. And the, 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 the story around first century Judaism goes something like this, I, and I don't know if this is 100% true, but it's, it's something like every Jewish boy had the opportunity to go to rabbi school. And usually at certain levels, they were kind of said, ah, you're not going to cut it, uh, go do something else. Every boy had that chance. And so, you know, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, in theory, I doubt it because they're fishermen's sons. And so who would give them a chance? But at some point in theory, they had the chance to be a rabbi. They would have been brought to Jerusalem. They would have been trained by the smartest of the smart. And they would have been equipped to read the text and interpret it for everyone else. But they washed out. Jesus doesn't begin his ministry in Jerusalem. He called the washouts. And they didn't even go to him. He had to find them. Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they had no idea what they were being called to. Can you imagine the power of that moment when everything for them is open again? When all of a sudden, they're washed out lives. Because you know what they were going to do the next day. They were going to catch fish and mend nets. And you know what they were going to do the day after that. They were going to catch fish and mend nets. And along comes Jesus and says, why don't you come with me? And it's like a door opened up in their life. I mean, I think you know what that feels like because we've lived that. We've experienced that, right? I mean, the college students, if you're a freshman this year and you're here for the first time, first of all, we're really glad you're here. But second of all, nobody really knows who you are, which is hard and it's awesome. When I came here from from Colorado, I was one of like three people that I knew at ACU. And I didn't know those other two people very well at all. I was basically here by myself. And it was a very lonely time these first few weeks of school. 
because nobody knew me. They didn't know my stories. They didn't know my humor. It was hard. But on the other hand, they didn't know all the dumb stuff I had done and the ways that I had messed up my life. They, I was getting a clean slate. And right now, you kind of have a clean slate. The truth is that once I got accepted into college, once I was good enough to jump the bar, right, nobody ever asked me what my GPA was ever again. In fact, I have never had one person say, hey, what'd you score on that ACT? Nobody cares. And you may be that person that's inclined to like wear your high school letterman jacket around campus, and that's cool if you want to do it. But all the little, the letters and the, the bars and the whatevers, nobody cares, dude. <laughs> you get a new start. You get a brand new story. And Jesus in that moment calls Simon, Andrew, James, and John to a new beginning. They had no idea. They had no idea that they were going to see Jesus walk on water. They were gonna, had no idea they were going to see the lame walk. They had no idea they'd see the dead raised. They had no idea that after three days, after three days witnessing their rabbi crucified in the most horrible death possible, they would see him live again. And we don't know either, do we? You probably had no idea what you were getting into when you stepped into the waters of your baptism when you confessed to your family and your friends or that massive crowd that you believed Jesus was who he said he was. You had no idea of how much joy you were going to have. You had no idea of the hope that would sustain you in hard times. You had no idea that when you were in the depths of the valley of the shadow of the death, that you were not alone because God was with you. You probably also had no idea how much it was going to hurt how much following Jesus was going to cost you. Simon, Andrew, James, and John had no idea what they were getting into, but neither do we. I think the most powerful and consistent tool for us to be disciples together is the willingness to resubmit your worldview and philosophical disposition to that of your rabbi. What I mean by that is that throughout this sermon series, as we go through the book of Mark together, over and over and over, we are going to be forced to ask the question, who is Jesus and what does that cause me to do? Is Jesus who he says he is? And if that's true, what does that mean for me? Because if he is who he says he is and he ends his life in service on a cross, then that probably is going to shape our lives as well. But my guess is, is that the resistance that we have uh, is because there's a rub between our prevailing culture and the philosophy around us and the gospel. It's a rub that kind of that causes friction in our souls. We don't want a gospel that we have to die to. We want a gospel that elevates our sense of self. But I think there are a few places where that rub occurs and we can be willing to die. 
There's that distortion of certainty that exists from the modern philosophical perspective. And, and all I mean by that is that somehow in the last 300 years or so, we've come to the idea that we can know things for certain. And we've applied that to our idea of faith. And, and so on some level, what we've come to believe, and I think this is a, a bad idea, that we must be certain about our faith. The opposite of faith is not doubt. We hold faith and doubt in both of our hands, and that's how we hang on to Jesus. The opposite of faith is certainty. It's not believing when we know for certain. And so we lean into the mystery of God. We lean into the, the mystery of salvation that somehow through the cross and the resurrection, we too are granted new life. There's this bare logic of capitalism that's been blended with the seductive call of consumerism that tries to redefine who you say you are. There's a message in our culture that's trying to convince us that our most valuable aspect is how much we can put on our credit cards and how much we can spend or how much we can earn and how much we can pay. So much so that the most important markers that we look through in the news at the day sometimes is the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones Industrial Average because somehow that measures the worth of our culture. The economy becomes a beast that must keep consuming and keep devouring until we are just cogs in a machine and it strips away what we were created to be, which is the image of God. And the gospel presses against that and says, because we know who Jesus is, we know who we are too. There's an unfortunate end to the metaphor of fishing that Jesus tells us. Like that fish that was swimming in the water, the young fish looks to his friend and says, what is water? The next moment, he's hooked on a hook, pulled up by a line, and he's flopping in a fishing boat. He can't breathe. He doesn't know what this is. It's certainly not water. He didn't know what water was just a moment ago, but right now what he really wishes is he could be back in the water. The truth about becoming a fisher person is that the fish, they struggle and die to the darkness of the water, but then they are raised up into a new world, a new world of light. But the hard truth is you have to die too. Mark will never take his lens off the cross. From the beginning and the first steps of Jesus' ministry, his eyes are on the cross. What does it mean to live and die in the light of what God is doing in this world? But the joy of it is that he's called us to be a part of this too. Simon, Andrew, James, John, and Shane get to be a part of that story. Praise be to God. If you have your bulletin, I want to draw your attention there for just a minute. We're doing something for a season here at Highland, and I'm, I'm kind of excited about it. At the, at the bottom, you should see this tear-off sheet. There's a place for your name and your email address. I would love for you to fill that out right now. 
and then tear it off, turn it around to the other side. There's three spiritual disciplines that we want to invite you to engage in uh, this week. Spiritual disciplines aren't magic. There's, there's nothing that uh, happens there other than we create space and we put ourselves in the posture where God can reach us in a more clear way. And so there's three disciplines I would invite you to engage in. The first is prayer. You know, this week, get consistent about prayer. Create a space to talk to God. And remember, prayer isn't just talking to God, it's also listening. Spend time in prayer. The second is silence. Our world is so full of noise around us that constantly barrages us, so turn off everything and, and be in silence. Maybe this is as you're driving in your car on your commute, just turn off the radio and don't listen to it. Experience silence and allow God to speak. And the last is to become a fisher of people. You know, Jesus transformed Simon, Andrew, James, and John, their, their vocation. Instead of being fishermen, they became something else. And, and God may not be calling you to change your job, but I guarantee you he's calling you to be different in your job. And so this week, wherever you're at, whether it's school or at, or at college or at work, find a way to be kind. Find a way to be merciful. Find a way to be the hands and feet to Jesus to someone else that you need. Let's stand and praise our God together.